Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today's show is part one of a two-part conversation with my good friend, Kevin Shu. Kevin has quite the unique background, having acquired his Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from Brown University before studying both law and computer science at Stanford. He then spent a couple of years at the White House in the Obama administration before becoming an entrepreneur in e-commerce and then design strategy. He then became very interested in open source projects, something he invests his money in to this day, and is the founder and author of Inter connected.blog, a publication that analyzes businesses and trends from the lens of builders, operators, investors, and regulators, and how they are all interconnected globally. Did I mention that every post is bilingual, both in English and Mandarin? And for good measure, he also happens to podcast as well. In this part one, we talk about open source and China's sentiments on it, as well as the investing landscape around it. We close it out discussing whether Kevin thinks platforms like Facebook and Twitter should be moderating political ads. Enjoy. China is now really looking at open source uh, as a way to prevent themselves, frankly, from being additionally more screwed by the sanctions and also use it as a foundation to build technology that they can now deploy and also, in a sense, control so that they wouldn't be subjected to more sanctions that could further hobble uh, you know, the future of their technological economy. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Todd. Let's talk a little bit about your backstory. Uh, I know that you did grow up in Canada as well, but you're in the U.S. now and all of your work and all your blogging, all your podcasts, a lot of it is just, you know, talks about China a lot, quite a bit as well. So give us a bit of your backstory and where you're from. What are you doing now? So I was born in Shenyang in China, which I like to call it the Pittsburgh of China for folks who have never been to China or especially that part of China, right? The Northeastern region, which very few people actually do spend time in, even though I know you have. <laughs> Fun fact, my daughter was born in Shenyang. There, there you go. So we have that uh, Laoxiang connection over there right off the mm -hmm, bat. Mm -hmm. uh, so I moved to Canada when I was 10. And then I moved okay. to the US when I was 14, went to college on the East Coast of the US, graduated in 2008. And then that was when uh, Barack Obama was still a senator uh, running for president. So I started working on his first presidential campaign in Charlotte, North Carolina. And after that, spent quite a few years in D.C. working in the Obama administration and then left in 2013, I'd say, uh, back to the West Coast. Uh, started law school, but actually ended up 
studying more computer science than law. And we can get mm-hmm. into that if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And that's how I wound up in both the technology circle, the VC circle, but also kind of the US-China technology uh, Venn diagram. Uh, after law school, I started working for a few Chinese tech companies, particularly mm-hmm. in the enterprise open source uh, sector. And now I do mostly uh, investing uh, in open source technology startups. And also I write a a bilingual blog called Interconnected in both Chinese and English, trying to tease out a lot of these uh, different industries and their connection with each other, which just happens to kind of mirror my own personal life up to this point. So I try to bring as much kind of nuanced perspectives into a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the world. A lot of it is kind of analyzed from a single perspective. And I like to bring multiple perspectives and angles to these complex uh, things. What about the podcast? You're the co-host of the Model Majority podcast. That's right. So I also co-host a podcast called the Model Majority Podcast, which is more of an Asian-American-focused political podcast where I try to highlight uh, Asian-Americans and actually quite a few Asian-Canadians as well who are in fields like politics, like public service, like activism, to bring their story out because of this sort of misconception that Asian people, quote-unquote, are less active, are less invested in, you know, public affairs, or civic life they're more Mm. just like in their enclaves and don't really Mm. get involved which is true obviously is to a certain extent but there's a lot that asian americans and minorities in general are doing to be active citizens in america and in canada and i personally obviously kind of walk those shoes as well having spent a lot of times in public service in dc and i want to bring out a more of uh, their stories as well which frankly just ended up being a lot of my obama world friends who happen to be asian and they want to yeah. you know, share their story. Okay, I'm going to want to come back to that. But first, I want to acknowledge how we actually got connected. Uh, Gen Kanai, who, for listeners who want to go back about 10 episodes uh, a couple months ago, uh, will uh, remember the Gen Kanai episode where we talked about a lot about Japan and tech in Japan, talking about Mozilla, eBay, all kinds of things like that. You mentioned your um, investing in and, and involvement in open source. Is that how you met Gen? If not, tell us a little bit about how you met Gen, who was kind enough to introduce us. Right. That's exactly how I met Gen. So after I started writing my interconnected newsletter, in which I do talk a lot about how open source technology is this global uh, collaboration framework, essentially, between developers from Europe, from China, from Canada, the US, India, Latin America, everywhere, collaborating on large software projects that end up being uh, the the source of uh, power for our phone, for our data centers. Uh, I read a lot about that interconnection. And again, uh, being a a veteran of open source technology, having worked at Mozilla Foundation uh, and Mozilla, the the company, I guess, in a sense, too, which is one of the uh, very kind of established presence in open source found me. And then we had a good chat about what is he seeing in Japan, in Southeast Asia, obviously in China, where he spent many years there as well in terms of open source. And he knew you. And that's how I got connected to you, Todd. I want to actually bridge that into another quick question before we get too far. You mentioned, you know, the open source uh, and talking about the interconnection between Asia. Uh, maybe even that was, you know, leading into your Venn diagram comment earlier. Can I just ask you, broadly speaking, what is the China sentiment 
on open source in general? Mm-hmm. So there's actually a lot of interesting things happening recently when it comes to the Chinese government's uh, view towards open source technology. So mm-hmm. prior to that, open source is just a piece of code that anyone can download, they can use it, they can deploy it, they can copy it, and they can make derivative products on top of it. That is kind of the ethos of open source and all for free, right? So naturally, if you are an economy like China, who's trying to catch up very quickly, uh, you know, the tech sector is obviously booming in the last 20 years or so depending on how you want to start it, uh, a lot of open source technology solutions were uh, are being used in Chinese companies right now and since their inception. And slowly but surely, uh, they start to also produce their own open source projects and try to share their new innovation, uh, you know, uh, and there are a bunch of projects I can cite as examples coming out of China that are also open source. The other developers from other parts of the world are collaborating and contributing and using. Now, as far as the country itself's perspective towards open source, I think because of the recent sanctions and uh, barriers that the U.S. government has put on Chinese technology companies when it comes to Huawei, when it comes to, you know, the semiconductor uh, makers, they are now preventing these Chinese giants, right, from accessing American-made technologies. Uh, There's been kind of this official attitude shift towards really embracing open source technology as a way to just access technology that they couldn't access before. There's always some kind of open source alternative to the proprietary solutions that you would normally buy or license. And as a country, China is now really looking at open source uh, as a way to prevent themselves, frankly, from being additionally more screwed by the sanctions and also use it as a foundation to build technology that they can now deploy and also in a sense control so that they wouldn't be subjected to more sanctions that could further hobble uh you know the future of their technological economy are they gonna have any i don't know issue trying to get deep into open source while as you mentioned in the same breath also would like to control isn't you know open source almost the antithesis of control Exactly. I think there's a huge uh, conflict there that the country is still trying to figure out, basically. And I wrote a piece uh, on my uh, newsletter that's called Can You Nationalize Open Source? Right. If people Google those words, you'll probably find it. And that was very much in the context of the question the U.S. asked, which is that open source is great because of exactly what it is. And there is actually a lot of interesting governance issues to open source as a whole. Uh, there are foundations that are nonprofits, for example, that would uh, quote unquote govern a piece of open source technology that's very central to a lot of companies and you know devices that isn't controlled by any company or any country, obviously. It's controlled by this neutral governance structure that has a a technical committee of, like, say, nine members. They vote on stuff. They have election terms. All the deliberations publicly viewable in a listserv or, like, a Google group or on GitHub, for example. And, And, you know, Mozilla Foundation is a very good example of that in some sense as well. The Linux Foundation, which is another one, is a good example. And all these norms of governing, right, of control in a sense, is rather antithetical to how China is currently governed as a country. 
right? So there's a lot of, uh, I think, mental conflict there in terms of how do you do open source properly? Because if you over control the open source project, doesn't matter where it's coming from, you're going to thwart the potential of its collaboration and its future. And if that happens, then it's just kind of a complete waste of time uh, to even promote something like that. And obviously, if you do it too too broadly or too transparently, it could go into all kinds of different directions. Um, and, you know, that could also be a problem. And one thing I would just cite uh, to your listeners, if you're interested to watch, is this thing called Open Atom Foundation. Open Atom Foundation is the foundation that uh, was very recently formed by a bunch of folks from Huawei and also from academia. And they also have involvement from Alibaba and Tencent and all the tech giants in China that are fostering open source technology that are very much in the same fashion as, say, a Linux foundation, for example. But it's all primarily Chinese companies, right? So how will this... uh, kind of model of open governance evolve will very much actually be indicative of how well China as an economy, but also as a source of technology innovation can actually run in the very long term. From a society, from a Chinese society point of view, I feel like if the government in the top down nature of saying, you know what, we want to encourage more open source, I almost feel like from the bottom up, from the societal point of view, that it's going to be a little bit of hesitation for a lot of, you know, kind of national mainland Chinese there to really kind of go all in on this. I I feel like they're going to somewhat hesitantly get in because this is not exactly something that they're used to being able to just rush into and do. It it, it might... uh, Would they... Would they see this as something counterintuitive or uninstinctual to get into really throwing themselves into open source um, just as kind of a, a society that has kind of just leaned on direction from from top down? And this seems to be uh, a little maybe counterintuitive to that. Mm-hmm. I think another way to look at it is that I think there's a trust issue uh, between the grassroots uh, developers. These are your everyday software engineers working in Alibaba or a startup doing the work. And they've been familiar with open source technology from other parts of the world for a very long time. Right. The top tier engineers in China, they all grew up outside the wall so to speak. Like they've been hopping over the wall since they were like 13 because they needed to like Google shit and learn how to like run a Linux kernel on their laptop and like learn all this stuff. And they're very accustomed to open source as a way to use and improve and collaborate on technology, right? So that's almost like their mindset. Mm -hmm. And because of that mindset, which I think is quite predominant in the developer community in China, when you have a much more top-down version of that in the form of, say, Open Atom Foundation or in the form of, say, a piece of policy document from the relevant ministries in Beijing being like, hey, we really love open source. We're going to like help you and be a supporter of this thing. 
uh, I think there's some doubts as you know, in terms of how open is this thing really going to be? Should I actually spend my energy uh, working on projects that are part of the Open Atom Foundation, or should I not even bother because that is like a totally different mm. beast? Even though it's uh, packaged or framed to be open source. It ain't the open source that I'm used to uh, using and working on. So mm-hmm. I think that is the tension uh, that uh, will need to have to be sorted out for open source to be a, an actually relevant piece of, uh, you know, source of improvement or source of, uh, you know, advancement in China, uh, which is already happening everywhere else, a bunch of the different places in the world as well. Quick clarification, open Adam, is that Adam and Eve or is that Adam as in moles and molecules? Adam as in moles and molecules. Adam, yeah. A-T-O-M. So O-P-E-N-A-T-O-M Foundation. Okay, good. I know a lot of our audience is probably itching to talk a little bit about your time in the Obama administration, just because that's where a lot of our listeners uh, might have gravitated to when, when you said that. But before we let them have that, uh, I have one one more question around you invest a lot in uh, your time and maybe your money in open source projects. What are you looking at? General open ended question here. What are you looking at? What's really, really interesting and happening in that space for you right now? So. Open source is eating a lot of different parts of the entire technology stack from databases to, you know, containers with Docker and Kubernetes. These are, you know, open source projects. So there are two different directions. They kind of started in the middle, which I will call a database sort of like in the middle. It's not like all the way down to the hardware, but it's not something an everyday person would use. And they're now going into different directions. Right. They're going either up the stack to an application layer in terms of, say, business intelligence gathering or um, even a Slack, for example. They're open source alternative to Slack or they're going all the way down to the hardware uh, in terms of semiconductor design. You know, there's a very popular open source semiconductor design um, project called RISC-V, for example. It's spelled Mm. R-I-S-C-V. So V is the five in terms of Roman numeral. And what I like to look at is that regardless of where in the stack you are in terms of your open source project, your ultimate audience are developers. These are software engineers, sometimes even hardware engineers who need to use this in a way that is actually very similar to how an everyday person use consumer uh, applications, right? If you're using an iPhone, you're downloading a an app that you've heard of. And if it doesn't do anything for you, interestingly, in like the first 30 seconds, you're kind of done with it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, developers are having that kind of expectation of open source technology and enterprise technology in general, in terms of if I'm not doing anything interesting, if I'm not solving kind of a pain point that I have either at work or in my pet projects within the, say the first 15 minutes or even 10 minutes, then it's done. So what I look at coming back to your question is how good is the open source technology or a company that's leveraging open source technology so that you're giving them that consumer satisfaction for a developer, right? I really much see developer as its own persona, as its own audience. And there are people at the end of the day, they're moms and dads with family and limited time, and they need to solve technical problems. If, if you're a project or a company that can really have that wow consumer-like moment, but with a piece of raw technology, uh, then those are the kind of companies and you know potential that I uh, love to invest in and look at. 
Yeah. I would say that in my experience from startup land, I spend 95% of my time trying to bring people from corporate soldier training of MBA school, what have you, over to uh, being more uh, risky and a little bit more swashbuckling with their uh, approach to building a company. Whereas the open source people that I've run into have almost passed the point and I'm actually trying to bring them back to remember you do need to build a business and you should try to be a little more consumer centric. Um, Is that maybe one of the, you know, the pitfalls uh, or maybe, you know, one of the, uh, the, the cons of, of working on that side of the spectrum where you spend a lot of time? So I think that's an interesting uh, framework to think about open source from his historical perspective. And there's even this like weird China angle to it, which is that open source, when it first, first started uh, in the 80s, roughly speaking, was a socialist worldview mm-hmm. against the Microsofts of the world. I think right. particularly against Microsoft as a company, as this big monopolistic, capitalistic, value extracting behemoth. Uh, that's like making software uh, consumption so expensive. And there's these MIT academics and from other schools who are like, software should be free. Software should be free. We're never going to charge. We're never going to you know, license anything weird or to have all these terms. And that's where open source grew out of originally. So it has a very socialistic bent to its worldview and a large uh, kind of chunk of that community still has that. Right. And then eventually, I would say more like in the last five years or so, you're seeing very big commercial opportunities coming out of open source. Obviously, there was Red Hat, which started much earlier that monetized Linux, the open source uh, operating system. Right. Uh, so you have, a, you know, attention right now within the open source community where it's like, are you like the 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 Microsoft kind of like big like capitalistic type of open source people? Or you're the more altruistic, socialistic type. And mm-hmm. uh, for me, I guess as an investor, you try to parse out who you can actually work with. Um, since I am a capitalist at the end of the day, I'm going to make investments and I want to see big returns and want to help these companies succeed as companies, not as um, a nonprofit, for example. Then you have to figure out the personality type, right? And like, what is your relationship with money, for example? How do you see money? How do you see company building? Why are you building a company? Why don't you just throw it out there and make a foundation? foundation out of it, for example, and just seek donation, which is, you know, some really popular open source projects that are widely used survive on that basis. And that's perfectly fine as well. Like Wikipedia. Like Wikipedia, you know, another really popular kind of front end uh, framework is called Vue, V-U-E. Mm-hmm. JS yep. uh, is completely surviving on the donation and kind of almost a personal charisma of the uh, of the creator uh, Evan Yeo, uh, who is also Chinese American and he's wildly popular in China in that circle as well. And he's never raised a single dime. He's just like, I'm just going to do this and get donations and people pay me, and then that's the end of it. That's the to me almost as a as a human existence. That's the perfect way to like if you can survive and live and 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 you know make money without ever having to ask or ever having to sell, and you're just doing what you love. To me, that's like that's that's the utopia of of existence uh, for me. Anyway, a question just backing off some of this that will actually start to bring us back into talking a little bit more about uh, governance and governments. Do you think the internet should be governed? Hmm. That is. 
a big question. <laughs> I know. Um, or and, and I could lead you there because the, the backup on that one is should Facebooks and Twitters be governing um, political ads? Um, I don't think so actually. So like the internet is like too big maybe, but as far as these particular social media companies, uh, Facebook and Twitter in particular, which obviously has huge impact in terms of how people exchange information. Um, and I wrote about this too, uh, on my blog, but basically my current stance is that they should not actually essentially moderate speech if only because they don't have the due process and the procedural authority to moderate it so. And it's a very kind of weird argument. But um, the reason why I say this is because uh, one of, I think, the very, uh, one of the more thoughtful people on this issue is the CEO of Cloudflare, uh, Matt Prince. Oh, yeah. uh, he was actually a former lawyer and then became an entrepreneur after he went to business school. You know, Cloudflare obviously is a huge company right now serving mm-hmm. the internet, right? So they are basically, they're much more of the internet from, an, from like a protocol infrastructure perspective than Facebook or Twitter, for example. And they shut down a right-wing website, I think, two to three years ago. I think it's called The Daily Stormer. Um, But the reason why they shut it down wasn't because they were right-wing and he or other people in the company disagreed with their point of view. It was because they were misusing uh, the business relationship between Daily Daily Stormer Mm -hmm. and Cloudflare, the the provider of CDN, as a form of endorsement. So it was like a mischaracterization of Uh, a normal business relationship. And he had this very uh, thoughtful blog post explaining why they banned it. It wasn't because of speech, because it was not my place as a CEO of a company to determine what you should and should not see unless it crosses another line. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, uh, there's no, um, there's nothing that grants Mark Zuckerberg that authority any more than Jack Dorsey, any more than Sundar Pichai, or any of the CEOs of large tech companies to be in the middle of that exchange. And I know this gets into a lot of controversies, even people within my world, like my old Obama world, I'm sure a lot of them would disagree with that vehemently. But for me, it's like, I think procedural justice trumps free speech in a lot of ways. And that's what Matt said in his blog post is that free speech, and we can talk about this in the context of China too, that's more of like a cultural interpretation in a lot of ways. Yeah, And it's unique to the culture and to the uh, history of particular countries. And we in America obviously have our own interpretation of it and we, you know, hold it up very highly, but you can kind of universalize that as easily. But when it comes to due process and procedural justice, that's a much more universal value or universal framework. And like, this doesn't matter what kind of dispute you have in any country. Uh, the process in which you got to that decision, that's important. That's basically procedural justice, right? Kind of putting my like law school student yeah. back hat, uh, hat back on again. And it doesn't matter if you agree with the decision or not. If the process is fair and neutral and transparent, coming back to open source governance, yeah. even if I don't like the decision, I'm okay with it. Yeah, exactly. As long as it was fair and, and due process, then then okay. And I understand the process and why this was yes. decided here, why that was said then. And even if I don't like the decisions, like so be it. But that's, I mean, it's it's a really good point because I think you lengthened the view on my original question because I 
you know, I think short-sightedly think, uh, yeah, like when we see things that are wrong and we have the ability to stop them from being spread, we should do that. But in the long term, in the in the lengthened view that I think you brought about, it was like, well, it's not really about what's right and wrong. It's about who's making that decision and how are they making that decision that we should care more about. Uh, we can all kind of tell right and wrong. But then that also brings me back to my case where I'm like, I'm not sure that people are have the ability to determine right and wrong anymore. Uh, I think it has become so convoluted. Thank you, Internet. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And that uh, is a different issue, right? Than who gets to decide what I see and don't see and who gets to decide what is wrong and what isn't wrong. Like, even if we assume that we can all know what is right and what is wrong, uh, which is a terrible assumption at this point, but let's just assume so, then I don't want a third party that I do not have any transparency over whatsoever, right? And this gets gets into the recommendation algorithm of Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and all these other in YouTube and whatever. It gets into the content moderation algorithm of what comments get deleted or flagged and what doesn't. I don't have any transparency as a person who I think can tell between right and wrong. I have no transparency into that whatsoever. And therefore, whatever decision those things make has no procedural justice value to me whatsoever. Yeah, I think we're we all believe that we're we can tell the difference between right and wrong. I think that's like the innate fallacy of what drives us all so farther apart. You mentioned that, and and I just want to point to you you when you talked about how many Asian. Uh, Canadian, Asian American friends in, or people in your network that are also involved in politics. I sensed almost a bit of uh, surprise um, that uh, maybe that you felt so many Asians would be willing and wanting and interested to be involved in politics. Was I reading that wrong or was there something a little bit there as far as you being maybe a little bit surprised how many Asians like to get involved in politics on this side of the ocean? Mm-hmm. So I think I I was uh, lucky to have worked both on the Obama campaign and also his White House uh, during my 20s. And I got to see a lot of people that did look like me. There weren't that many, but there were some. And it was more than I had ever expected because I certainly didn't enter politics with any sort of ambition. It was very much more of a fascination to me. And the the one thing led to another. So, you know, the the, the two sides to your question is that I I was surprised to see how many there were. But in a way, also, there wasn't enough. Um, And part of the platform that this little podcast that I started was that I want to share more of these stories of people I did happen to know who did chart a path into public service or activism or all these sorts of like non-traditional things that Asian immigrants aren't expected to do and just give them a template, right? And this is not to say more or less people should do that. It's just that I know there are more kids out there in college or in high school right now who would probably want to pursue that, but because of say, family expectation because of their own insecurity, because of lack of role models, because of lack of templates, they are afraid to take that 
path, even though they could have been very good at it. Um, and what I did, that was sort of the, 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 the very core motivation of that podcast was to present templates of people I happen to know. And these are very mm-hmm. high level people, right? They're, they're secret, they're commerce secretaries, they're energy secretaries. There are ambassadors to China. There are governors or people running for governor all the way down to, you know, your local, um, town city council member it doesn't have to be a high office it could just be within your community and the whole point was that you are here and you are a citizen of this country and there are avenues to be involved if only to protect yourself and to really showcase your own um sense of um activism and right or wrong in a sense you should do it and there's actually very little cost to doing it Okay, that is it for part one, everybody. Stay tuned next week when we cover part two of our conversation with Kevin Shu. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.